Welcome to the first episode of the Youth Mental Health and Addictions Treatment Network podcast. This is a collaborative project between the IWK Health Center in Halifax and Capitalize for Kids to improve health outcomes for children and families across Canada. My name is Justin Skyini from Capitalize for Kids. And I just want to take a minute to tell you a little bit about what you'll be listening to. Each month, we host a webinar featuring a high priority topic in child and adolescent mental health and addictions. Experts will share best practices and answer questions from clinicians across Nova Scotia. The following show is an edited archive of the webinar session. Our topic for this episode is obsessive compulsive disorder. We'll hear from Dr. Alexa Bagnell and Dr. Anne-Marie Joyce from the IWK Health Centre, who will provide an intro to OCD treatment and discuss exposure response prevention. We'll also hear a case study to provide a real-world example of how this method is applied in practice. It's important to note that practices discussed in this podcast are sensitive and only intended for qualified and trained mental health professionals. This is not intended for parents or caregivers who do not provide professional mental health services. I hope you enjoy the first episode, and I'd love to hear your feedback so we can keep making them better. Leave your comments in iTunes and let us know what you think. Enjoy. So uh, welcome everyone. This is Dr. Alexa Bagnell from the IWK Health Centre and I'm joined by Dr. Anne-Marie Joyce, the psychologist with the OCD clinic at the IWK Health Centre. And thank you very much for all the great interest in joining for this very first webinar on OCD in children and adolescents. So how the session will go is we're first going to go over some OCD symptoms and how it can present clinically. Uh, Then we're going to talk about the evidence-based treatments of OCD, particularly focusing on exposure and response prevention. Uh, We're then going to go into a case study, which is an amalgamation of a whole bunch of youth, so not based on one particular youth, but that can uh, exemplify how OCD can present and then also a treatment uh, in terms of exposure response prevention. And then at the end, we're going to have time for uh, question and answers. That will be about 10 minutes. And you'll be able to put uh, those into the chat room uh, and then we will answer as many as we can in that time frame. If they don't get answered, we will then answer them afterwards. And this whole session is being recorded as a podcast, which is pretty cool and innovative. So just to start, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. uh, In the DSM-5, there was a change. Obsessive compulsive disorder used to be considered uh, under the anxiety disorder. Uh, diagnosis, but now it has its own uh, diagnostic category, and it's the obsessive compulsive and related disorders. So those include obsessive compulsive disorder, body dysmorphic disorder, hoarding disorder, trichotillomania or hair pulling, and excoriation disorder or skin picking disorder. So it's important to know that because we are seeing these uh, illnesses now as a separate category and neurobiologically from the science and the neuroimaging studies, we know that they are different in terms of the brain areas and regions affected. In terms of diagnostic criteria for OCD, uh, there's the presence of obsessions, compulsions, or both. And that's important because sometimes you can have only obsessions in obsessive compulsive disorder, or sometimes you can just see compulsions. For most of our youth that present, we do see both, both obsessions and compulsions. Uh, These need to be time-consuming, greater than an hour a day, and cause significant distress or impairment in functioning. And that's important because many people have obsessive-compulsive disorder symptoms in the population, 
Uh, in fact, in healthcare, uh, that can actually be uh, somewhat helpful to have some of these symptoms in terms of making sure that you uh, check things or done things correctly. Uh, so it's not something that we say is always an illness, and it's important to try and differentiate the distress, how much time is it actually taking up, and how much is it actually impairing and functioning in terms of a diagnosis. And then in terms of the criteria, we also need to make sure that it is not related to a substance or medical condition underlying or another mental disorder. This is new in the DSM-5 in terms of OCD specifiers. Uh, and these are important in terms of uh, treatment response and also how we're going to approach treatment. So insight in terms of how someone sees the OCD and whether they see it as a problem or not, or an illness or not, uh, is a very important factor in terms of treatment. So we know that people who have good, and fair, good or fair insight into their illness are often ready to engage in treatment, uh, willing to uh, participate earlier, and often have a better response earlier. Uh, poor insight uh, can lead to not seeing OCD as a problem and maybe not being as engaged in treatment to start with. And then absent insight or delusional beliefs about the importance of OCD or seeing it as part of them and not able to separate from themselves uh, can make it very uh, challenging in terms of treatment. Then there's also the specifier around tick-related. Uh, so if you have a current or past comorbid tick disorder, this is also now included uh, as part of the diagnosis in terms of whether they've had a past history of a tick disorder or current tick disorder. When we talk about obsessions, uh, one of the ways we describe those with current and persistent thoughts, urges, or images. And that's important because many times people think about it just as thoughts, but actually sometimes people don't describe it when they have the illness as a thought. Sometimes it can be a picture they see or an image, and sometimes it can be a feeling that they have or an urge. It's experienced at some time during the disturbance as intrusive and, and unwanted. And that's important. We sometimes call that ego dystonic. So it doesn't feel right. It is not something that they want to have happen. And it is sometimes against their values and beliefs. And in most individual cases, it causes market anxiety and or distress. Uh, the individuals attempt to ignore or suppress these thoughts, urges, or images and to neutralize them. So the ways that they can neutralize them uh, that they will utilize is sometimes uh, doing a compulsion or a ritual uh, to actually reduce that uh, thought, urge, or image and to decrease their distress. Or sometimes they'll negate them with another thought uh, or do something uh, contradictory to it to actually relieve that distress. When we talk about obsessions with kids uh, and teens, we try and use metaphors to get them to understand what's going on in their brain. Uh, so some of the ones that we use are uh, a false alarm in the brain. So there's a fire alarm uh, going off in your brains. So that could be anxiety. For some kids, it's a panic attack uh, when OCD is triggered, but there's no fire. Uh, so there's a fear around, for instance, germs or dirt, something's been touched or something is going to make them ill, but there actually is no what we call scientific evidence that that is true, but the fire alarm uh, is going off in their brain. Uh, another way we describe it to kids is that the volumes turn too high, so they can't think of anything else. So when OCD gets triggered, that's all they can think about, and it's like they've gone from zero in their volume to 10 maximum, and so nothing else can get in. That's all they can uh, focus on at that time. Another term we use is sticky thoughts. Uh, so thoughts that won't go away, they stick in your brain, they keep going, they keep recurring, um, and until you do something about them, such as a ritual or a compulsion, uh, they, don't, uh, they don't leave you. The other uh, thing we often use in our new modern era of recycling is that many people have uh, bad thoughts or uh, negative thoughts and they actually trash them or throw them out. 
But in OCD, these thoughts actually get recycled. Uh, so there's this recycling of these thoughts, putting extra importance on them uh, that shouldn't really be there. And that's what an obsession can, can be. Some common examples of obsessions, germs and contamination uh, would be the number one uh, type of obsession uh, that we would see in uh, children and youth. Uh, and then second, close second would be harm coming to self or others. Uh, so those two are probably make up the majority of what we see in children and youth in presentations of obsessive compulsive disorder. But it's important to know that there's a wide variety of obsessions that youth can present with. Uh, intrusive thoughts, especially of a violent and sexual nature, uh, can commonly present uh, in children and adolescents with OCD, and oftentimes they may not report them. Uh, they're incredibly distressing, they can make them feel like a very, very bad person, that they're having these thoughts and images, or that there's something seriously wrong with them, and so they often keep them secret, and it's not until we actually ask about it that they actually will tell us. So it's important to always include those when you're asking questions around uh, obsessions. Uh, there can also be obsessions around uh, fear of losing or forgetting or doubting whether you've done something or remembered something. Uh, and that can lead to uh, checking, for instance, in terms of compulsions, which we're going to get to in the next few slides. Also, lucky and unlucky numbers, colors, words, kind of magical thinking uh, around uh, certain things that will create a good day or a bad day or prevent a bad thing from happening. Uh, and then what we call sort of more on the morality, right, wrong, religious scrupulosity uh, types of obsessions, which can include things around God, uh, whether you've sinned, uh, being moral, being a good person, uh, whether things are right or wrong uh, from an ethical or moral point of view. Uh, and these are other types of obsessions uh, that can occur. The last category of obsessions is what we call yucky feelings. Uh, if you're a kid, uh, or sometimes if you're a teen, we might say like the not right or it doesn't feel right. Uh, and those things are what we call the just right uh, types of OCD, uh, where you really have a, it's more of a sense or a feeling you get than that there's a real, real worry around a bad thing happening. It's that something doesn't feel right or you doesn't, um, it isn't right the way something looks. So on the other side from obsessions are compulsions, and compulsions are described as repetitive behaviors or mental acts that the individual feels driven to perform in response to an obsession or according to rules that must be applied rigidly. These are generally aimed at preventing or reducing the anxiety or distress uh, or preventing some really bad or dreaded event or situation, and they're usually not connected in any realistic way and are clearly excessive for what the uh, worried thought is. So in young kids, uh, they may be doing uh, rituals or compulsions, but they might not be able to tell you how, like what these behaviors and mental acts are actually doing. So they may be feeling they need to do them, but they might not be able to create the link for you. And often parents are in a place of trying to understand why certain compulsions actually are related to the obsession uh, that a youth has. Uh, and we often will say, we don't try and make a lot of sense out of uh, the compulsions or out of obsessive compulsive disorder in general, uh, because often the two are not linked. So we will have uh, youth who are very concerned around contamination and uh, will be uh, touching things or doing things that actually don't make any sense as to actually true worries scientifically around contamination. So we know not to try and make sense of it, but actually to just understand that that compulsion is to actually decrease the anxiety or distress related to the obsession and 
people will keep doing the compulsion or the ritual until that anxiety actually feels like it's decreasing. Some examples of compulsions are ritualized or excessive cleaning, which we will often see in contamination obsessions. Uh, checking things, uh, which is common in preventing bad things from happening. Also in doubt or forgetting uh, when you think you might leave something behind or have forgotten something. Uh, repeating or redoing uh, an activity. This can happen in many different types of obsessions, but uh, can often happen in just right types of obsessions where you, things don't feel right and you need to keep repeating them till they feel right. Uh, ordering and arranging. Uh, that can be just right, but it can also be to prevent bad things from happening uh, or other obsessions. Uh, counting, tapping, touching. All of these can happen in certain numbers. It can be even, it can be certain multiples of numbers. And it's really important to ask around why uh, and what is sort of the reason behind what they're doing and also what number they're doing or is there actually just a feeling they have when they're actually done. So there can be many different patterns around that. Doing things evenly uh, or symmetrical, starting with your left foot, then your right foot, uh, doing things in twos, uh, if someone touches you on one side of the body, then you need to touch yourself on the other side of the body, uh, putting th making sure that you've got evenness in your clothing. Uh, so all of those things can actually take up quite a bit of time uh, and often are related to either just right or symmetry, but can also be done when you're needing, when you feel like that is actually needed to prevent something from happening. Praying or confessing uh, things like so bad thoughts that you have. Praying can also be related to uh, religious scrupulosity. Uh, or feeling like you may have sinned and needing to um, reverse that. And then negating compulsion. So doing the opposite or saying the opposite or saying the opposite in your head um, to negate whatever you thought. In terms of treatment of obsessive compulsive disorder in children, uh, the first line is cognitive behavioral therapy. And we're gonna talk a little bit about that uh, with Dr. Joyce when we get to uh, a, a couple slides from here. And the main component of that is exposure response prevention. And we're gonna spend a little bit of time on that. Uh, the second line is cognitive behavioral therapy in combination with an SSRI medication. And the most commonly known um, SSRI medications uh, that we are using in children and adolescents with ozoxamine, sertraline, and fluoxetine. Uh, so fluoxetine is Prozac, uh, sertraline is Zoloft, and fluvoxamine is Luvox. Uh, we do on occasion use citalopram and escitalopram, so Celexa um, and um, Ciprolex. However, we don't use those usually for sign that the evidence base is stronger in the other three. And we use these when the cognitive behavioral therapy is either not progressing because the level of anxiety and distress uh, with the OCD is so high, or for some reason they're not even able to engage in cognitive behavioral therapy uh, due to the distress or panic attacks that the uh, child or adolescent is having. Uh, so the SSRI really helps to decrease the what we call the alarm bell or the high distress panic uh, with the OCD so that the youth can then move forward with the exposures and the cognitive behavioral therapy strategies and have success. Uh, we really see it as a combination and all the literature shows that the best uh, treatment when you are using a medication is to combine it with cognitive behavioral therapy. And then third line is cognitive behavioral therapy in combination with clomipramine. Uh, clomipramine is a tricyclic antidepressant and it has quite a few more side effects than the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or SSRIs. And so that is why it is third line. It has excellent evidence from randomized control trials 
in OCD and would be considered gold standard if it was not for the side effect profile. In terms of medication treatment in child and adolescent OCD, the main rules are start low and go slow. So we use the medicines at a very low dose to start. We go up very slowly, usually an increase every uh, two weeks or so. And then once we get to what we call a therapeutic dose, we usually wait at that therapeutic dose for a bit to see response and also to see how they're doing in cognitive behavioral therapy. In general, in obsessive compulsive disorder treatment in children and adolescents, the dosages are usually higher uh, than what you would usually uh, see response to in anxiety disorder treatment. Uh, but that is not always the case and is part of why we go slow to see uh, when we reach a dose where they're actually able to make progress in the therapy. Uh, they may not need a further increase at that point and then we would monitor accordingly. It does take a bit longer to see benefits from uh, the medication in OCD than it does in anxiety or depression treatment. We will often say it's about a 10 to 12 week to get maximum benefit from a specific dosage change. We tell all families, uh, all children, youth and families about the antidepressant risk, uh, the Health Canada warning around increased risk of suicidal ideation in youth 18 and under on these medications. Although it is incredibly rare, it is still an important uh, side effect for uh, families to be aware of. And from a child and youth perspective, there is very uh, minimal literature supporting the antipsychotic augmentation of treatment refractory obsessive compulsive disorder. So if the uh, antidepressant is not working, we will generally switch antidepressants as a first line and then do another switch uh, before we would augment with any other medication due to the, there being very little literature around this in children and adolescents. In terms of obsessive compulsive disorder treatment uh, in the cognitive behavioral therapy, the main treatment modality uh, and manual we use is the treatment of obsessive compulsive disorder in children and adolescents by Adrena uh, Pinto-Wagner. Uh, this is a great program uh, because they give us all the information at once with CDs um, and uh, printable materials that families can have and use, and it gives a really good stepwise progress for uh, OCD treatment in children and adolescents. Uh, it does have as its main component, the exposure and response prevention, and really focuses on this behavioral uh, treatment readiness, getting ready and understanding OCD, the education for children, youth, and families about what OCD is, and identifying the OCD and externalizing it, but not a lot of focus on cognitive work in OCD treatment, much more on the exposure response prevention. And now I'm going to hand it over to Dr. Joyce, who is now going to take us through uh, exposure and response prevention. Hi, everyone. Uh, it's Dr. Joyce. Um, so exposure and response prevention, or ritual prevention, or ERP for short, basically means that you're facing the source of the fear. And the most important part about this is to endure the discomfort until it fades. That means it's not enough to just dip your toe in the water. You got to jump right in and wait till it feels better. Um, and during the exposure, it's important that the person doesn't do anything to make themselves feel better. So that might include something like a ritual or a compulsion. It might also include a distraction, whether provided by them or by somebody else. It's really important that ERP is gradual, that you start with the easiest, smallest step, and you practice, 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 practice. I often use an analogy of when you're learning how to use a musical instrument or learning a sport, the practice is the most important component of that. Uh, another metaphor that I really like to use with youth is it sometimes feels like OCD is in the driver's seat. OCD decides where you go. OCD decides where you're going to stop, what you can do, all the rules of your life. 
and through treatment, what we're doing is moving OCD into the back seat, so it's that annoying mother-in-law backseat driver, and then eventually in the trunk, and then we're leaving it by the side of the road and driving away. The idea is you're in charge, not your OCD. You be the boss, not OCD. And what that really means is we're empowering the youth or the adult to decide when and how to face their fears instead of having OCD make those decisions for them. Because the only way past a fear is through it. So that's the only way to find out something bad. Nothing bad happens is to, to expose yourself to the feared thing and nothing bad happens. Uh, so the core of ERP is to do the opposite of what OCD wants you to do. So if OCD wants your hands to be clean, we're going to make them dirty. If OCD has a very strict ritual that you have to follow before bed or when getting ready for school, we're going to mix it up, do it in different orders, take out steps, do whatever it takes to mess with OCD. OCD says things must be perfect, we're going to make them messy, we're going to make mistakes on purpose, all of that. Um, and if OCD is saying that you're going to harm other people, you actually hold sharp objects around other people and find out that you actually aren't going to hurt them. The more you avoid whatever it is that they're scared of, the stronger OCD gets. The more they expose themselves to whatever they're scared of, the weaker OCD gets. I always say OCD treatment is very simple, uh, but also really, really hard to do. So what we do in terms of structuring it is two different things. One is step ladders. Another name for that is not graduate exposure, but gradual exposure, um, and also behavioral experiments. For all of these, it gets easier with practice, and there's a process that happens in your body called habituation, which is where you kind of get used to things. That happens really automatically. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to make it happen. It just happens. And uh, we know through experience that bad things usually don't happen. It doesn't seem that way when you listen to the news, but most of the time, bad things don't happen to most people. And even when they do happen, it's rarely as bad as you think. And in fact, all of the exposures are that way too. Kids tend to have anticipatory anxiety, meaning they're getting worked up before they even get into the situation. And then when they actually do the exposure, they're like, oh, yeah, that wasn't that bad. OK, I can do this again. So how do you construct a stepladder? The first and most important step is to find the fear. If you haven't found the fear, it's really hard to construct a stepladder. In OCD, this is often the, the target or the trigger of the particular compulsions or obsessions. Then you want to brainstorm whatever it is brings out that fear. Then have them rate them on how distressing each of those are from 0 to 10. 0 means no problem, I could do it right now. Usually I say, okay, prove it, do it. And if they are able to do it, it's still a zero. We don't need to put it on the stepladder. And 10 is the most difficult, something that's so challenging I, I couldn't imagine doing it right now. Put them in order from lowest to highest. Look for gaps to make sure that you don't have like a big jump from a two or a three all the way up to a seven. Um, and brainstorm whatever you need to fill in those gaps. The final step is to add rewards to each step. This is not as critical in teens and adults, although they should always be praising themselves. But for kids, it's really important because they might not have the intrinsic motivation to do this work on their own. They need external motivation. And it's also important to practice in session exposures. 
there's lots of different things that can influence treatment and make it easier or harder. One of the things that can make it easier is when patients have really good insight. They recognize this is OCD, this is me. They're two separate things. And in fact, that's a big part of what we're doing often is externalizing the OCD so that it becomes something separate and not fused with who they are. Another thing that often happens is families get involved with OCD. OCD pulls in parents, siblings, sometimes friends, and gets them to do its work as well. We call that accommodation. And the more accommodation is going on, again, the harder the work is. The good news is you have more people on your side when the accommodation is going on. Comorbidity. So if they have another mental health disorder, for example, depression or anxiety, uh, ADHD, all sorts of different things can make things more challenging. And then cognitive and developmental issues, just as with any mental health disorder, can also impact your ability to do treatment. So our case example is Aiden. And again, as Dr. Bagnell said, this is not a real case so much as an amalgam of a bunch of different cases that we've seen over the years. So Aiden is a nine-year-old boy. He's the only child. His parents are married and still together. He had a very gradual onset of symptoms. So he was always a little bit rigid with his rules right from when he was a, a wee preschooler. But he did well until sc in school until quite recently. And he started you know, not completing assignments, not doing so well, being very distracted. And his parents noticed that his hands were really chapped, which was unusual for him. He didn't have any skin conditions previously. Well, they found out that Aiden was actually washing his hands 20 to 40 times a day. And not only was he washing them a lot, he was washing them for a long time. And he had a lot of rules around how he washed his hands. So for Aiden, washing your hands must be done with hot water. In fact, as hot as he could stand. He had to use precisely three pumps of soap. Had to be liquid soap. Couldn't be solid soap. Washed his hands in a particular order. So first palms, then thumbs, then each finger, then wrists. Then he would rinse his hands. The water's still on at this point. You get a new towel, so could not use a towel that had been touched by anybody else. As soon as he was done with the towel, he threw it on the floor and then would turn the faucet off with his elbows rather than his hands. Uh, this isn't the only way that OCD was affecting Aiden. He also had a hard time touching a lot of things that would make him feel contaminated. In particular, doorknobs, especially in public, pens or pencils that someone else had touched, so you can imagine what that was like at school paper that someone else had touched, other people's hands or faces, not as much of a problem except around relatives, and his own dirty clothes were something that he couldn't touch either. So when we looked at the fears with Aiden, the big thing was all about germs. So all of these things were contaminated and would give him germs, and he had the belief that these germs would give him cancer and he would die. He also believed that he could pass on his germs and that would kill other people. And he was especially worried about people he really cared about, like his parents. So for treatment, treatment always starts with assessment. So figuring out what the symptoms are, where they are. Then uh, the next step is building treatment readiness. And this is really important. If you jump right into step ladders without building treatment readiness, often they fail because you haven't gotten to the point where a, they believe it's going to work, and B, they, they see OCD as separate. So remember I talked before about that externalization. That's really important. That's part of building treatment readiness. So for Aiden, it was about understanding that 
this was his OCD, it was ruling his life, it was ruling his parents' life, it was putting all these rules in place, and he was willing to work on it. Next, creating fear hierarchies based on the compulsions. So broke it down into three different areas, hand-washing frequency, the ritual itself around hand-washing, and all the things he was avoiding touching. So here's an example of a step ladder, and again, you wouldn't just create this like this. You want to brainstorm first, then rate, then put them in order. But his hand-washing ritual started with putting a towel on the counter, which he rated as a 2, then putting the towel on the rack, which he rated as a 3, only using one pump of soap instead of three pumps. That was a 5. Changing the order of his washing so that he was washing his fingers and thumbs and palms in a different order. That was a 7. Decreasing the temperature of the water was an 8 and using a shared family towel was a 10. So he was actually starting with the very easiest one, so putting the towel on the counter rather than throwing it on the floor. But for each step after that, they were building. So it wasn't that he got to go back to throwing the towel on the floor when he was working on the soap. He was maintaining the changes that he had done already and just adding more on top of it. Second stepladder example was about touching contaminated objects. So in this case, coming up with all the different things that OCD was convincing him were contaminated, and then putting them in order. One of the things I find when making stepladders is it's often very surprising what the ratings are, and it doesn't necessarily make sense to us because OCD's rules don't necessarily make sense. So for him, his own dirty clothes were quite easy, then the couch at home, pens or pencils someone else had touched, paper, doorknobs and then other people's hands or faces were the was the most difficult for him so that was the final step on the stepladder for all of these steps in the stepladder he wasn't allowed to wash his hands so he would have to touch the thing until his distress went down ride it out and not wash his hands the key there is to also not let him wash immediately after the distress is gone, but to rather wait until a normal time for washing, such as before eating, after using the bathroom, etc. Um, so now we have time for questions, and I'm going to turn it back over to Dr. Bagnell, and I'll jump in as needed. One of the things while we're waiting for questions, uh, I thought I could highlight uh, some of the things that had come up in our presentation that are what we would call, Dr. Joyce, I would call key things when we first do education with. Uh, youth and families around OCD. Uh, the first is identifying that it is obsessive compulsive disorder. And the next is, as you probably heard us say a number of times, externalizing it. And that's really important for families, but also for youth to see it as separate from them, because we're going to be asking them, as you can see in the exposure response prevention, to actually fight OCD and not do what OCD says. So it's very important that we're all fighting the same thing. And that's good for families too, because there can be a lot of conflict in families. Uh, when OCD is moderate to severe and really taking over a family's life. So having everyone invested in fighting OCD together can really help and so they're not fighting each other. So now I'm going to move to the first, let's, the first question. Um, yes, please comment on uh, treatment to, uh, treatment for obsessive thoughts that do not have accompanying compulsions. So that's a great question. The, uh, just what some would call pure obsessions or pure obsessive thoughts that don't have any clear compulsions, we often will first look at those. Sometimes those obsessive thoughts are related to harm, bad thoughts that can also be uh, related to uh, sexual bad thoughts, uh, violent bad thoughts, and they can be religious as well. We will see if there's any compulsions that might be a little more subtle. Uh, one of the main ones would be avoidance. 
So they may not have any clear rituals or things that you would typically think of as compulsions, but they are actually avoiding things. So they may be avoiding being close to certain people they care about due to sexual bad thoughts, or they might be avoiding being close to sharp objects or being around things that trigger those uh, images. So they may not watch certain shows, look at certain words, read certain books. They may need to not look at news in a certain way. So there are many things that we'll ask around to see if there's subtle avoidance going on, which actually we think of as a compulsion. And we know it's actually increasing uh, the obsessive thoughts. Okay, so we'll move to the next one. Could you talk about bad thoughts OCD, both from a diagnosis, differentiating differentiating self-harm thoughts versus OCD and from treatment. Uh, so let's start with uh, the bad thoughts OCD and the self-harm thoughts. It's a, it's a really uh, tricky one and often we are uh, in a position of trying to decide is this real suicidal ideation uh, or is this an intrusive uh, OCD uh, type thought? And I will also say just from the start, sometimes youth can have both. So we really need to talk to them about their OCD, what it's like, and what the thoughts feel like. Uh, so OCD thoughts are ego dystonic. They cause a lot of distress and they're usually not something they would ordinarily be thinking. Uh, the complicating factor comes because uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, when it gets moderate to severe, has a high comorbidity with major depressive episode. Those kids who become very ill with depression and OCD, uh, the depression carries a high risk of suicidal ideation and suicidal thoughts and no longer wanting to live like this, feeling that life isn't worth living with the degree of impairment they have with OCD and then the major depressive episode symptoms as well. So we are often uh, trying to figure out between those two. I will tell you that with youth, once you start to educate them around OCD, what those thoughts are like, uh, what they feel like, they can actually start to tell you the difference, uh, but it does take some time. We obviously err on the side of safety uh, whenever we're first getting to know a youth and talking with them, uh, but we do start to have them say after a while, is that a, a true suicidal thought or is that an OCD thought? And we'll have youth say, that's an OCD thought. It feels different. It feels very anxiety provoking, make them, makes them almost panicky. They may need to do a ritual or compulsion related to or, or avoid something, or they may need to seek reassurance. And it can be, it's often very different with the self-harm or suicidal thoughts that are coming with low mood, no longer wanting to be around anymore, associated with a much more what we call egosyntonic in that they already feel like life's not worth living uh, and they're having those kind of thoughts. So it is something that we uh, are often differentiating in acute care settings uh, and in uh, mental health and addictions clinics. And it is a good time to actually bring in, uh, if you are sort of wondering and it isn't clear to you, it is a good time to get a case consultation uh, to have a fellow clinician uh, and run it by them either by phone or discuss in the clinic uh, because it is one of the areas that takes some discussion and often uh, takes some time to uh, work out between uh, the two when you're uh, meeting with the youth. So really good question. In terms of treatment, because uh, that's going along the same question, the treatment for uh, OCD and uh, so OCD bad thoughts around self-harm and uh, self-harm thoughts and suicidal ideation that are more related to uh, mood uh, and not OCD uh, is different. Um, so OCD bad thoughts so around self-harm, we are actually often, they may actually be avoiding things. So they might be avoiding sharp objects in their house or uh, violent images on TV uh, or 
um, uh, we've had youth who actually won't use staplers or scissors or anything because they are really fearful they will do something to hurt themselves. Uh, and we, we will actually expose them to holding those things. Uh, obviously with suicidal ideation and self-harm thoughts, they're more related to low mood. We're working on actually coping, distress tolerance, safety planning, so a much different approach. So uh, I think this actually brings up that this would be a great topic for our uh, fall uh, webinar uh, because you could actually do a whole session on this. Um, so I will say this is what we will talk about uh, in the future because it is a great question and one that I think we often see clinically. I'm going to give the next question uh, to uh, Dr. Joyce, the in-treatment thoughts on how many step ladders should you be working on at one time, or is it best to create success with one ladder and then move on to the next? Okay, that's actually a complicated question because there is no simple answer. It's not like I can say three and that's how many you should be working on. It really, really depends on the person. So for example, uh, you always want them to be doing something. So you don't want them to be going home between sessions and not have anything to practice. So sometimes, because of the nature of the stepladder, it's something that they can only practice once a week, in which case you want them to be working on more than one stepladder. But you don't want to overwhelm them and have them be doing a whole bunch of stepladders at once because it can get really confusing and really overwhelming. So I'd say not, not doing more than uh, one or two steps a day is probably a good idea depending on how aversive they are. Um, the other side of that, oh, the other side of that that I wanted to say is what we're doing in therapy is not so much finishing every stepladder that we can think of, it's teaching them how to make stepladders. So helping them really understand their OCD, understand how to make stepladders, because OCD is often a very long-term condition and will have ebbs and flows. And so we want them to be able to respond to future recurrences on their own before having to come back. So we're actually teaching the skill just as much as we are doing the practices. And I'll pass it back to Dr. Bagnell. Thanks, Dr. So I'm going to go to the next question. Can you talk about OCD and substance abuse? So we definitely see comorbidity uh, with obsessive compulsive disorder and substance abuse and misuse. I would say that the main reason that you, uh, if it's obsessive compulsive disorder and then they're actually starting to use substances, the main reason for it is often to um, modify their high anxiety, panic symptoms that they're having a lot of trouble tolerating. So it is to cope with some of their symptoms. The other way around, so substance abuse leading to OCD, there is not good literature that that is actually the case. Can you have both occur? Can you have substance abuse occur before uh, OCD? Yes. Uh, but generally, substance abuse is not linked to uh, developing obsessive compulsive disorder. It is a complicating factor, just as in, in any uh, comorbidity or concurrent illness, in that if you just treat one, uh, you're unlikely to have a big impact uh, overall. And so we know that youth that have both, uh, we really need to help them with both illnesses at the same time. So very similar to depression or uh, social anxiety disorder, uh, when they have a, a concurrent substance use uh, problem, then we know we need to help them with both at the same time uh, in order to see actual uh, benefits in their function and level of distress. Uh, so I know that's kind of a short answer to that question, uh, but we definitely see it as a concurrent approach uh, when it does occur. The next question is, could you speak a bit more about exposure to sexual bad thoughts? 
it would also be great to hear any tips about uh, getting buy-in from caregivers to exposure response prevention to treat harm thoughts. So great question. Uh, I will say that most of us hope that at first there are other things to work on at first to get buy-in around exposures uh, before tackling either sexual or religious bad thoughts because sometimes that's really hard for families as a starter in terms of exposures and for youth as well. Uh, so one of the things that we know about sexual bad thoughts is that uh, they often present uh, very uh, significant panic attacks and significant avoidance. And when the youth finally tells someone uh, that it is happening, uh, that they're having these bad thoughts, uh, often there's quite a bit of fear around uh, this disclosure of these thoughts. As for um, from experience, people worry, you know, has there been any trauma or abuse that's occurred? Uh, so often these youth will present uh, to a number of people first before it's identified as obsessive compulsive disorder. And we know that once we are seeing them, and these are intrusive, uh, they can be uh, images, they're egodystonic, uh, they're highly distressing to the point where they will often uh, not be able to sit near caregivers if the sexual bad thoughts are about caregivers or if they're about, uh, for adolescents, if they're about uh, uh, children or more what we call pedophilic uh, intrusive bad thoughts, they actually will have avoided being around children, they'll have avoided all playgrounds, they will no longer babysit because they really fear that they will act on these thoughts, that there's something really wrong with them. And so the education part is really key and making sure that parents and the youth really understand how OCD works, about the egodystonic nature of it, but also about the avoidance part, that the avoidance of all of these regular routine things actually give strength uh, to the obsessive thought and make it actually bigger and more powerful and more distressing. Uh, we start with really basic things in terms of the sexual bad thoughts, in terms of exposure, so sitting near the person that you're avoiding. Uh, if it is around uh, children, so you know, getting back into uh, babysitting. Um, so doing things that you are had been avoiding and trying to bring those back into your regular routine is the first thing. We will, as we move along in therapy, uh, progress into um, scripts and things that youth will read or words that they will read uh, that might have sexual connotations or be sexual, what they would consider sexual bad thought words. Um, and that can cause a lot of distress. So we're usually gradually uh, working into that. And when we do those things, we do do practice in our sessions. So one of the key things for exposure response prevention is actually practicing some of those things with the therapist in session, having the parents be a part of that. So that first of all, you can see, are you really hitting at the OCD uh, with that? Is it tolerable? Maybe it, it's more of a 10 than a six or a four. Uh, and also uh, getting everyone normalized, what I would say, to the process of exposure response prevention, that you're really practicing being exposed to that bad thought or a bad theme or a bad story uh, to make it have less power so that OCD is no longer as powerful. Uh, and that takes some practice, uh, and that would also, I think, be a very good uh, topic for a future webinar. Uh, the next question is, can you comment on OCD as a response to a traumatic experience? And that is a great question because we do see youth who've had a traumatic experience and develop uh, obsessive compulsive disorder afterwards. And sometimes it is what we would call more linked in that it's more of a contamination fear or it could be a sexual bad thought fear. But oftentimes it's something that might be more of a just right type of OCD that presents 
or repeating ritual uh, or more uh, routine driven where they have to do things in a certain order. So it's not always related to uh, contamination, which many might think that that could actually uh, would actually be the way it presents. And it is an important differentiator uh, because it makes a difference when you're actually um, doing uh, exposure. So if someone's had uh, a traumatic experience and they develop OCD symptoms uh, post that, uh, you need to make sure that when you're doing things, you're actually not doing anything to re-traumatize them. And so sometimes we'll say, uh, we're going to help you with tolerating the OCD and um, not giving into it, but we might not do any full exposures if we're still, if the trauma experience hasn't actually been worked through, uh, because we know we could actually do more harm. So we're balancing that out. We also have kids who have some obsessive compulsive symptoms after a traumatic experience that would not meet criteria for obsessive compulsive disorder. So we would actually be treating the trauma, not uh, going after uh, the OCD as primary. So it's an important differentiator in those kids. I'm going to give the next question to Dr. Joyce uh, in terms of uh, the group therapy setting for OCD, uh, where she could talk a little bit about our uh, parent uh, group for uh, parents of children and youth with OCD. Yes, so we don't actually treat uh, the children themselves in that group. It's a group for parents. Uh, one of the reasons that we don't work with kids in an OCD group is because we find it's really hard to give them the kind of individual work that they need. Uh, it works much better individually. However, getting parents together is a different story. We have a group here. It's a five to six session group, which is just for caregivers, uh, for them to learn how to change accommodations. So the things that OCD is making them do, that they have control over, slowly reducing those. In the same way that their kids are working on reducing their OCD behaviors, the parents work on reducing their accommodation. Once again, starting with the easiest stuff, working towards the hardest stuff. The parents seem to really enjoy this group. They enjoy not only learning how they can be involved in treatment quite directly, but also in finding out, yeah, there are other parents going through the same thing. And OCD is really hard on a lot of different people. Uh, so that's the group that we're running here right now. Um, the next question is treatment success in youth when their parent has untreated, poorly managed OCD. You remember how I talked about things that impact the treatment? This would be one of them. So it is really hard to tell a kid to not do an OCD behavior or get them to practice not doing an OCD behavior when their parent does the exact same behavior. Um, and of course, it's going to impact buy-in as well. So it's, it, it's very difficult when you have a caregiver with OCD and a child with, care, with OCD as well. It doesn't mean it's impossible. It can be done, but it does make treatment much more difficult. So the last question is, uh, can you comment on cannabinoid oil? I've had several patients, uh, parents of patients with OCD ask about this recently. And I will say, I too have had quite a few parents of patients ask about this recently. So the scientific literature would not support cannabinoid oil for obsessive compulsive disorder or really any um, child psychiatric illness. Uh, there is no evidence for cannabinoid oil in any child or adolescent psychiatric illness. The uh, Google, my friend, uh, the science of Google will tell you differently, uh, but in terms of uh, research, there isn't any. And there is quite a bit of literature right now in terms of cannabinoid receptors in youth. So in our brains, those are uh, some of the most active receptors in our children and adolescents, and the most change happens before the age of 25 in those receptors. 
So we know that those youth are more at risk for something that is cannabinoid receptor uh, attached. And so we do know that, um, although we are not sure long-term what that means, we would not recommend it in a developing brain. And so that's the kind of information I try to give to parents is we still don't really know. We know there is no science behind it that would support using it uh, for this illness, yet there is very good evidence base in terms of uh, the SSRI medications, if medication is needed, the uh, cognitive behavioral therapy for OCD are excellent treatments with very, very low side effects and very effective. So we would recommend that and not using something uh, that has uh, no known uh, benefit and also uh, has tremendous risk uh, in this uh, developing brain population. So thank you everyone for joining. It has been great and great attendance. And thank you to uh, Justin for helping coordinate this and doing all the background work. And thank you for Dr. to Dr. Joyce uh, for helping present this with me. Thanks everyone and have a great rest of your day.